Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're going to discuss a couple of papers that we reviewed in our conference this month. No deep dive here into the articles, but we will add some links to our foam friends who have done some extensive reviews already. First up is an article from Pediatrics that was reviewed by one of our senior residents, Kevin Carey. It was entitled, Validation of the Step-by-Step Approach in the Management of Young Febrile Infants. A bit of background here. Fever without a source in kids under three months of age can cause a lot of anxiety for EM providers, and that anxiety is centered around the issue of how much of a workup should I do? We want to find all the kids with serious bacterial infections, but we don't necessarily want to get cultures and LPs and admit every kid for antibiotics. There are a number of criteria, including the Philadelphia, Rochester, and Boston criteria to help with this decision process. But these tools were all designed in the early 90s before the widespread use of the pneumococcal vaccine. The step-by-step approach was developed by a group of European pediatric emergency physicians who were looking to create a modern tool to help clinicians make the determination of which kids under three months of age can be managed without an LP or empiric antibiotics. This study is a validation of the tool that was previously derived, and we'll drop a figure outlining the step-by-step approach itself in the show notes. This validation study was a multi-center, prospective look at 11 European pediatric EDs looking at kids under 90 days of age with fever without a source. They compared the step-by-step approach to both the Rochester criteria and the lab score tool, which were previously derived to try to assess these kids. The primary outcome was accuracy in determining low-risk patients for invasive bacterial infection. Basically, the group collected about 2,200 patients and assessed the accuracy of all three tools and then compared them to each other. The step-by-step approach had a better sensitivity, better negative predictive value, and a better negative likelihood ratio than either the lab score or the Rochester criteria. Overall, the step-by-step approach missed seven patients with invasive bacterial infection. Six of those patients were in the 22 to 28 day range. So perhaps in that group, we should think a little harder about doing a complete workup and admission for antibiotics, regardless of where they fall on the criteria. Our conclusion on the study was as follows. The febrile infant can be a diagnostic and management challenge for the emergency medicine provider. The step-by-step approach to identifying infants at risk for potentially life-threatening invasive bacterial infection has an excellent sensitivity and negative predictive value, making it a reliable clinical decision instrument which avoids invasive studies such as a lumbar puncture. However, we should use caution in applying this rule to the group of kids 22 to 28 days old. For an in-depth review of the study, check out the SGEM number 171 with Ken Milne and Anthony Crocco. Let's move on to article number two, and this was published this year in the Annals of Emergency Medicine entitled Lung Protective Ventilation Initiated in the Emergency Department, the Love ED, a quasi-experimental before and after trial. Intubation and mechanical ventilation are commonly performed in the ED, and while the lung protective strategy put forth by the ARDSNET group has been widely accepted in the ICU, its permeation in the ED hasn't been quite so robust. I often walk into a shift and see patients on 100% FiO2 with 5 of PEEP and a much larger tidal volume than the 6 to 8 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight recommended by the ARDSNET. The question is whether ignoring lung protective strategy in the ED makes a difference to the patient. This was a before and after study looking at a period of time before implementation of a lung protective protocol in the ED and then after implementation. The composite primary outcome was development of ARDS or ventilator-associated conditions. Overall, 1,200 patients were in the before arm and about 500 in the after arm. 
The group found that prior to implementation, the rate of combined primary endpoint was 14.5% and just 7.4% after the intervention, and that gave an adjusted odds ratio of 0.47. Looking at the secondary outcomes, we see an improvement in ventilator-free days, ICU-free days, and hospital-free days, as well as mortality in the post-protocol implementation group. This wasn't a perfect study, and that's due in large part to the before-and-after methodology. But here's our bottom line. Patients intubated in the ED without reactive airway disease should be ventilated with a lung-protective approach. This includes getting an accurate height to use for the tidal volume, minimal FiO2 to meet an O2 saturation greater than 90%, and matching PEEP to the FiO2 according to the ARDSNET protocol. We're going to shoot to keep the plateau pressure less than 30 millimeters of mercury and keep the head of the bed at 30 degrees. We'll drop the protocol in the show notes, and for an in-depth analysis of the article, check out Rebel EM. The final paper discussion was from Jenny, and it was from Resuscitation, again published this year, entitled Changing Target Temperature from 33 degrees Celsius to 36 degrees Celsius in the ICU of -of Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a before-and-after study. This study was undertaken at the Alfred Hospital in Australia, and among the authors here is Stephen Bernard, who published one of the original trials on the use of therapeutic hypothermia after ROSC back in 2002. Over the last 15 years, we have seen a swing towards cooling patients to 32 to 34 degrees, and then a swing away from it when the TTM trial by Nielsen in 2013 came out. The trial by Nielsen basically demonstrated that cooling to 33 degrees was no better than cooling to 36 degrees, and it led to widespread adoption of the idea that it wasn't about cooling, it was simply about preventing elevated temperature that was the issue. Stephen Bernard himself has said that based on the TTM trial, we probably don't need to cool patients to 32 to 34 degrees after ROSC. That brings us to the current study. The authors did a retrospective cohort study of consecutive patients who suffered VF out-of-hospital cardiac arrest before and after the TTM trial. The TTM results led this hospital to switch from cooling aggressively to 33 degrees to aiming for 36 degrees. The study looked at the impact this change had on patient temperatures and outcomes. 24 patients were in the 33-degree target group and 52 in the 36-degree target group. They found that after the change, patients spent less time at the target temperature, had increased rates of fever, decreased rates of being discharged alive or to home with a favorable neurologic outcome. Bottom line was that the change in management led to low compliance with the target temperature and worse patient outcomes. This is a wonderful example of unintended consequences. As it turns out, keeping a patient at 36 degrees isn't nearly as easy as perhaps we thought it would be. There appears to be more resistance to the body to staying in that target temperature range, leading to the increased incidence of fever. What this tells us is that when you shift a protocol, even when you have the best intentions, there are going to be some unintended consequences. It's vital for us to study these as these authors have done so that protocols can improve as they move forward. What do we do with this information? Well, I don't necessarily think that we have to go back to cooling patients to 33 degrees, but we do have to employ the necessary strategies to prevent patients from spiking their temperatures when we aim for the higher temperature mark after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is likely going to mean increased sedation and increased utilization of muscle relaxants. All right, that's our journal review this week. Let's recap each of those articles one last time. The step-by-step approach to managing febrile infants is a reliable decision instrument to identify patients at a low risk for invasive bacterial infections. Use caution in applying this to the group of kids 22 to 28 days of age. 
The Love ED study shows an association between employing a lung protective ventilation strategy in the ED and decreased complications from mechanical ventilation. The best available evidence says that we should embrace this approach in the emergency department. Finally, while we agree that cooling to 33 degrees is no better than cooling to 36 degrees, shooting for 36 degrees is more difficult than we may have thought. We have to continue to be vigilant about maintaining patients in the target temperature range and avoiding fever. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.